All right, good morning, everybody. This is the 24th of March, 2013. This is James, and Steph is out this week, coming back from Liberty on the Liberty on the Pines, in the Pines. I'm sorry. It's one of those, Liberty and Pines, out of Texas. And uh, so filling in for Steph today, we have Brett Vinat. Brett, good morning. Good morning, James. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Brett is uh, the has a School Sucks podcast. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of that. But uh, Brett, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, well, School Sucks podcast is something that I've been doing since about 2009, and we have expanded to a small web community, a YouTube channel, and uh, a live call-in show of our own. And, uh, you know, really what we're trying to do on that show is make a, a very clear distinction, and it's really, I think it's missing in a lot of the dialogue about education and schooling. Those two things are opposites. They're not the same. They're not synonyms. And um, we spend a lot of time pointing out some of the detrimental effects of the schooling system in America and certainly around the world. And um, the second phase of the show, if you will, has been to uh, explicate what real education is, how it can be achieved, uh, that self-directed process. So that's where I like to think we're focusing now. But before you can uh, reach for the stars, as they tell you to do in all those nice motivational posters in your middle school, you have to kind of, uh, you know, realize the hole that you were tossed into as a youngster and uh, get out of there first. So that's the um, the function of School Sucks podcast. Uh, and uh, I, I encourage people to check out what we're doing on on YouTube. Our YouTube uh, username is School Sucks Podcast. Uh, that's the short version, James. Um, so, Mike, you said you might have a few questions for him. I think I have a couple questions myself. So go ahead, Mike. Why don't you go ahead and pepper him with some interesting info? Sure, absolutely. Um, Brad, you've, you've been around the, the Liberty scene for quite a while at this point, and you've seen quite a bit. And I was curious if you had any thoughts on kind of like the current state of the Liberty community and your thoughts on how it's going, um, things that you like, things that you don't like, improvements that could potentially be made, just generally your overall thoughts on where we're going and uh, what you think about it. Well, I mean, I, I've been th through most of my active period, and I continue. I consider that to be you know the work I've done with uh, the podcast since August of 2009. Uh, I've been in New Hampshire, and you know, I, I think I've seen a lot of things that were really positive. I've seen a lot of things that um, you know rubbed me the the wrong way. Um, I try not to be. Uh, I mean, there's things I like. For example, here in New Hampshire, people have kind of separated into different places depending on how they want to engage in activism. So. We have Concord, New Hampshire, which is the state's capital, and people who are interested in this political stuff usually gravitate towards Concord. Keene has kind of become the civil disobedience capital of the world, uh, and people who, who um, are interested in pursuing that uh, gravitate towards Keene. And, uh, you know, people who are more interested in just a, an urban setting uh, that doesn't really have uh, either of those two uh, focal points usually wind up in Manchester or uh, the seacoast in, in Portsmouth. So um, there actually is a lot of, certainly through online, there's a lot of um, communication for people in different places. But um, I think 
I've seen that there's there's some frictions with different agendas, and I um, I really if I take issue with anything, I really don't think that political um, activism is good PR. And the the reason why is that politics is an arena where people go, in my opinion, from my observation, politics is an arena where people go to be angry, to vent aggression and trauma. And you already have, if you're trying to introduce people to, to new ideas, you know, uh, that doesn't seem to be that 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 arena that well is already poisoned. So it's very difficult to take um, the message of liberty into a theater where people only want to be angry and divisive and uh, spiteful and aggressive. And, you know, people understand, I think, Maybe if it's not even like uh, if they're fully aware of it, but I think on a on a deep down level, they understand that politics is force. So the subtext of so many political conversations, and I think one of the reasons why they become so uh, acrimonious is that people understand that the subtext is, I want my will imposed on you like this. So when liberty-minded people go into the political arena, um, I think that other people take the the message of peace, the message of non-aggression, ironically, and view it as a threat. So I would like to see people, um, you know, withdraw. If I could be king for a day, <laughs> you know, I would, like, <laughs> I would like people to withdraw from that from that political theater a little bit because I just think it's bad PR, and uh, I think. You know, the, the, the Free State Project is what brought me to New Hampshire and the gentleman who wrote the basically a thesis, I think when he was in academia for what became the Free State Project, there was one line in his piece where he said something like, we're going to go to a state and take over the government, right? So the language of that, and that is probably the most quoted uh, little snippet uh, that, that appears in all things anti-Free State Project. And um, that's, that sounds that, pretty that's scary if you is. don't know what the Free State Project is about. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Just want to take over the government. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, it's hard for me to. I'm really like focused on on my own thing. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of media that I really like, like of course Free Domain Radio. I was real into Free Talk Live and Complete Liberty and uh, numerous others. But, um, you know, I've been so focused on my own stuff lately that I haven't I really don't think I have a good assessment of of what's going on in, in the larger movement. And honestly, I would I would have trouble giving a real specific definition of what that even is, which is yeah, that was a, a long time. Point. That was a long time for me to talk before <laughs> defining what we were actually talking about. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so so it's a. I think the politics, first and foremost, is what troubles me. I can, I can certainly understand that. I mean, there's there's so many things that seem to divide people in the liberty community that, you know, if you look at the face of it, should have so much in common in the fact that there seems to be infighting at times and bickering, and there's not kind of a cohesive message moving forward about what it is that you know, we're trying to accomplish. Um, that can certainly be disconcerting at times. Mm. 
And I like, um, you know, I had some, I had a couple of good opportunities to reach out to large groups of people here in New Hampshire recently and uh, talk about School Sucks a little bit. I really wish, I would really like to see people turn the focus more towards, um, you know, attracting a younger crowd. I think this is a, a message that is generally appealing to a younger audience, but focusing more of the outreach, you know, away from the courts away from police. I mean, because I think a lot of civil disobedience, your your audience is bureaucrats, right? And a hostile public, you know, that's already also involved in the the political system in, in a given area. Um, focusing more on the schools, focusing more on parenting and, and focusing more on self. You know, I think it's really frustrating. And I think I did the same thing when I was, um, you know, first waking up to all this stuff many years ago is that a lot of people have a tendency to run as far away from themselves as they can, right? So they say, well, okay, I understand the message of liberty, uh, not on a personal level, but on a global level. So what I want to do is end the Fed, right? What I want to do, where I want to start is by taking on one of the most powerful organizations, powerful and secretive organizations in the entire world. So um, I described it once as this sort of this ring of concentric circles and where where you know we have a certain level of control at at each ring you know and the first one is obviously the personal the second one would be our relationships our family um and you know our community and then and then beyond that like you can put as many rings as you want and eventually you get to the last one which is the state you know and all of the uh organizations and institutions that are attached to it and i wish people would would um I, I mean, I guess it's a learning process. I, I wish more people would would recognize that uh, it's personal first, you know. And <laughs> you know, once once we we get our our own house in order, and through that we can build some meaningful, lasting, mutually beneficial relationships, and that might translate to stronger communities. And maybe eventually, when when all that stuff is taken care of, in the end, there'll be enough strength to take on something like the state, but it's not where I think you start. Well, it's certainly not where you have uh, most control over. You know, taking down the state or ending the Fed, these are gigantic, gigantic goals that are mm. pretty difficult to do, to really can contribute to in a significant way as an individual. But you have complete and total control over your personal life and how happy you are. And taking steps to actually move towards happiness is something that is real and tangible and you can do today, right now, not in, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years with the help of thousands of people. Um, mm. You know, I was thinking about that, too. It was like um, I, I make a lot of YouTube videos and I, I get this bad habit of reading YouTube comments uh, or reading comments online generally. <laughs> right. Um, I'm sure Steph knows this feeling probably probably better than anyone in the liberty community. Um, but. I read some of this stuff and I'm like, what's wrong with these people? You know, I mean, that's I, I think that's the first impulse. It's like, what? Why would somebody be so angry? And you know, the more I thought of the thought about it, and maybe this relates to what we were just talking about. The easiest thing to be in life, as far as like meeting the need, I think we all have for self-efficacy and and to have like an impact on the world around us. The easiest way to achieve that is to be a hater. You know. To, to, to think of really like nasty, acerbic, biting comments online, certainly the easiest place to do it. No one's coming to get you, you know, for anything you do there. Um, and I, I, I think that uh, maybe the attraction 
to some of these larger institutions that have this great, great distance from self or from uh, friends or family is that they're easy to hate because they're absolutely terrible, <laughs> you know? So, um, and, and waking up to all of this stuff usually brings a lot of anger. And uh, that, that anger needs a, a, an outlet. So I think that might be part of it as well. Yeah, Brad, I'd be interested in hearing more about your personal transformation coming coming to this material. Because I know for me, like you said, you know, coming along to realizing the reality of the state, there was a lot, a lot of anger that came up in me. I felt mm. helpless at, you know, many points where it's like, oh, my God, like if, if I accept all this to be true and you know, I went to public school for how many ever years and indoctrination and everything like that and all the people around me are singing the praises of the state and government and I just found it to be, I felt a lot of anger and I felt helpless and powerless at times. And yeah. it's interesting to see how that kind of came out and made it like nihilistic feelings at the beginning. It's like, like just wanting to give up. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting, I think, the emotional journey and roller coaster that people go on when they kind of discover um, the ideas of liberty. And I'd be interested to hear more about your personal transformation because I, you know, certainly with your previous occupation, it affected you far more than it would someone in just a, a general line of work. So, well, I think I've I've learned the most and I've made the most meaningful steps, uh, really related to a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, shifting away from from the the political and the more abstract and the more distant to the personal, uh, in the time that I've been doing the show, and um, I think that obviously the best way to learn, the best way to achieve mastery, I think, in, in any given subject is to teach it. Um, and I, hmm, I, uh, I, I was actually, I, I put this forward kind of as conjecture on my live show the other night. If the podcast had its origins in maybe my recognition of some of my, uh, the failure of some of my own communication strategies or in the past, you know, like, did I need the podcast because uh, I had failed so miserably at trying to communicate these ideas to the people that I always thought would be the most, um, the audience most likely to greet me with open arms and open ears, you know, like friends and, and, and family, like, oh, these, these people just lack information and I can provide it for them. And then we'll, <laughs> I mean, I, I think we all go through that, but, um, uh, and uh, when, because of the the anger that I think uh, comes for a lot of people, certainly for myself, when when we first realized some of this stuff, um, my communication strategies were pretty costly, and uh, I think it got to a point where a lot of people really didn't want to talk with me about these things anymore, and um, that might have been. Uh, partially, partially. I'm not saying it was the only reason, I think, uh, for the podcast, because I think the podcast was also uh, an outlet for me professionally, not just personally. I mean, there was a lot of um, times where I was sitting in meetings in high schools, uh, just feeling like I was going to explode for what I could not say, but wanted to. But, uh, you know, would hurt the company that I worked for, would kind of undermine uh, the goals of the people that I made the contract with who were parents and they really didn't know any better. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people maybe come to an understanding of the, the horrors of state education, uh, 
through an understanding of liberty, you know, the and maybe when they get to chapter seven in Murray Rothbard's For a New Liberty, they say, oh, education, that's part of it too. Uh, but but for me, it was the other way. You know, it was my experience in education that um, really, I think, first made me very anti-authoritarian, and that drove me pretty hard towards the left. And um, it was a, a gradual, a gradual process from there. I think initially I was uh, I was very reactionary, very conspiratorial. Basically, if something, um, yeah, I, I was you know initially into the to the Alex Jones crowd, and uh, I think it was around I don't know two thousand five, two thousand six that I I started listening to Free Talk Live, and from there complete liberty. And uh, it was Wes Bertrand who uh, introduced me to Free Domain Radio. So, um, and, and, you know, complete liberty and Free Domain Radio were, were really transformative for me. And uh, it was, uh, it was actually, it was funny. It was around the time that I started listening to Free Domain Radio that I, uh, I started the podcast. Cause uh, I was like, I gotta do this, you know. I like, and I had done stuff. I mean, I had a, I had gone to school for communication, so I had done radio stuff. I had a radio show in high school, um, and uh, I had been a teacher, and I had a lot to say about a lot of these subjects. So um, it, there was there was a confluence of things that brought me to the the whole school sucks project in uh, as a podcast in two thousand nine. I tried to sell it as a documentary or pitch I shouldn't say sell it uh, pitch it would be more accurate word and um, the the person who was uh, the producer that I uh, introduced the idea to I thought we were really speaking the same language on a lot of stuff educational and he said something like this is a paraphrase but he said something like it's not Michael Moore enough Brett you got to be more like Michael Moore you know that's what does that the, even mean <laughs> uh, that I, I think I was trying <laughs> more what more sweatshirts sweatshirts he has he 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 drums he, he goes around frumpily sorry never mind please go on <laughs> he does you know you're right he does go around kind of frumpily and you uh, don't look unpresentable enough brett you, <laughs> you need to gain about 50 pounds maybe then you can go and get hey, back i there. can look pretty unpresentable <laughs> Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, everybody. That was kind of a cheap shot of Michael Moore. There are much better reasons to criticize him. Go on, please. Sure. And and uh, we were actually talking about this on my show recently, too. There, there are some redeeming features of Michael Moore's work, but what Michael Moore does that makes him so, um, I guess, one of the reasons why I take issue with him is because almost everything that he does is an appeal to emotion. You know, it's, it's basically uh, trickery. And he he's a spotlight shiner. You know, so instead of instead of trying to understand the the complexity and the depth of an issue, um, he will find uh, these hard cases, these sad stories that um, can be used as an emotional means to back up whatever um, message or ideas or agenda that he wants to push with one of his film. And he will shine a spotlight on those people. He will give them. Uh, and, and certainly, I mean, uh, I think that there's there's nothing wrong with recognizing and and highlighting the fact that some people um are victims of things like uh, you know that the healthcare industry or the bush administration i mean i i have no i take no issue with that but 
Um, th th there's a real trick with documentary filmmaking, too, that makes me somewhat sympathetic to Michael Moore in that film is, film is about reaching people on an emotional level. So um, that, was, that was a real challenge for me when I started doing the podcast because you want to persuade people and you understand that really connecting with people is um, an emotional uh, pursuit. Like I, if people are only interested in logic, right? And, and uh, those, I mean, and they have complete disregard for emotion, right? That that's capricious or foolish to even acknowledge that we're emotional creatures. Those aren't really people that I'm interested in having in my in my life. You know what I mean? Like people who just complete. I mean, that's that's a mental health issue, right? So I think that you have to, if you really want to persuade people, you you have to be able to connect with them in a meaningful way on an emotional level. And when you're producing media, well, how do you do that, right? How do you do that without cheating and using uh, you know logical fallacies and emotional trickery? So there there is a balance. And you know, for me, uh, I was somebody always very interested in in film. And uh, I remember I heard Martin Scorsese say one time that the way to a person's heart is through music. And uh, I, 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 I I tried to, in in the production of my podcast, be as honest and as rigorous as I could at the time. I mean, I've made, so many mistakes along the way, but um, trying to be, uh, you know, as sincere as I could in the arguments that I presented. But you could you could get to people emotionally through the way that uh, the editing was done, or the the media clips that were used, or the music that was used, and you didn't have to cheat uh, uh, in the narrative as much. So, you know, certainly I'm. Like I said, I've screwed up plenty, but I, I think that uh, I, I, um, I recognize the challenges uh, that somebody like Michael Moore has. So, I mean, we see, we can see, we've all seen YouTube videos where people try to oversell it emotionally. Um, a lot, there's so many documentaries on, on YouTube or on uh, the site I recommend people go and check out is called Top Documentary Films. Uh, there's some pretty good stuff there. But we know what that looks like, where people are uh, emotional oversellers and um and a little lax on the facts as well and a little yeah, well that's that, that's 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 where uh they oversell emotionally right because mm -hmm. it's great to be emotional it's great to be passionate it's essential if you want to persuade people you have to be but Absolutely. if you're all emotion and no facts or or very little facts or very selective facts which i think is the case with with michael moore's films uh, mm you know, then that is the emotional oversell. And that can be, I mean, the same thing is done by politicians. I mean, that can be extremely dangerous when you get people riled up behind either a false idea or an idea with just enough truth behind it that you can spin it in a way that people believe it to be true. Mm, mm, yeah. And uh, that's some of the work we've tried to do recently on my show is point out some of the, uh, the tactics and the trickery that uh, especially the, the mainstream media uses, you know, to, to manipulate people. They're not even putting like too much effort into it anymore. I, I think that uh, you know, <laughs> everyone's so conditioned. I don't think they need to. Yeah. You know? A lot of the, the propagandist and the, the manipulators of public opinion, uh, there actually might be some promise and some opportunity in that because they're, they're getting pretty lazy. I mean, they're just <laughs> recycling the same crap. 
Um, you know, if you if you check out mainstream media for a given hour any night, um, I don't know why you do that to yourself, but if you did, well, you know, I I feel <laughs> like I have to do it to. I have to just kind of occasionally see what's going on. And sometimes it can it can charge me up a little bit. Not that I'm looking to get like charged up, but it it, it can just if I see the right thing or I guess the wrong thing, it can just um, give me a push. I need sometimes to maybe um, get on the mic or get on my live show with a couple of co-hosts and um explore an idea that I've kind of had at the back of my mind for a while. Like if I get that push, like if it's current, if this is a current issue, um, yeah, maybe sometimes being just completely enraged by something I see on TV or here on the radio uh, can be motivating, but I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. Everyone. That makes sense. What you're saying. Sometimes you got to dip your little toe into the, the cesspool kind of see what's going on and I mean I, I I definitely can connect to what you're saying as far as finding things that you see uh motivating you know it's like oh okay there's so many people out there doing things that I know are are not so good mm, and right. it can definitely be whether it's anger or <laughs> frustration or irritation or any range of emotions putting that behind the truth and putting that behind you know an idea that is rational and logically consistent that can be incredibly powerful and produce some amazing content that can really best communicate these ideas. Yes, absolutely. I was just going to say, guys, I, I don't know what it is. I, I think I repel callers. I have, I have the same problem on my show. I don't know what it is. I encourage people to call. Ask me anything you want. Absolutely. I, I, I did have a question uh, from the chat. Um, and uh, maybe it would be helpful if we sort of make it into a two-parter. Uh, they're wondering what you think about Steph's view of the family. And so it'd probably be helpful if you sort of, um, you know, sort of describe what you think Steph's view of the family is. And, uh, you know, and I know it's a very general question, but it's the only one we've got at the moment. So if, uh, if you have any thoughts on that or, um, what you'd like to say about it. Well, I think that, um, all right, my understanding, and you, you can fill this, this in as, uh, as it needs, and I do have to apologize. I haven't, I haven't listened to much of the show over the last year because, uh, I, like I said, I've been really busy with my own projects and my, my listenership to uh, most podcasts has uh, decreased because of that. Uh, the other thing, quick tangent before I get to that, that question, if you're if you're kind of impressionable like I am and you listen to somebody who has, uh, you know, like a, a really, um, you know, compelling style like Steph does and you talk a lot for an audience yourself. I noticed that after a while, if you listen too much, you start to sound like him a little bit. Which is right. not, uh, you know, like, uh, right, would, right, right, right. I would right. be talking to other people. Yeah, <laughs> I, exactly. I'd be talking to other people, right? And I would be doing like an interview or doing uh, some chat on my live show. And I would just, I would be listening to the recording and I'd be like, right, right, right. <laughs> like, where did that come from? Um, but it, but it, was, it was, there was a lot of examples like that where just the, you know, the inflection and um, because he has a speaking style that is somewhat infectious and, um, that's not why I don't listen, but uh, or, or haven't listened as much. But um, I, I think that that one of the things that that was really helpful 
uh, for me with Free Domain Radio is uh, Steph articulated that a lot of people were were kind of as adults fantasizing about their family and their childhood. That they had, once they were able to move away, uh, grow up, become adults, get some autonomy, um, they were constructing this sort of fairy tale narrative about what their what their childhood had been. And um, when when we do that, we really, I think, sacrifice uh, self-knowledge. Um, we we forget where we came from. We we don't we disown ourselves uh, to use. Uh, that sounds like Nathaniel Brandon's quote. Um, and we don't we don't have any when we say, oh, you know, my parents were really, really great or they did their best. Uh, we we fail to have uh, any empathy for for our child selves. And I think that, um, you know, for a lot of us, I think that can create um, a, a, a way forward as adults where if we don't look at the the impact, and it's not just, you know, family, obviously, on my show, I focus on school. It was like, you know, 40, 50 episodes in before we, we address family in, in any meaningful way. Um, people have a kind of programming that I think is very much um, formed in, in, in childhood. And um, I think, I, I, don't, I don't think Steph's uh, message is any more prescriptive than this is something that you need to look at, you know? And maybe there's varying degrees of, of depth depending on uh, who the person is, or what, or what issues they face as adults. Of course, we we do understand that this that that Steph and the family is something that is uh, really caricature, caricatured in um, maybe the rest of the liberty movement and beyond. Um, there was uh, uh, Bob Murphy had a joke at uh, at the roast uh, where he 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 introduced Steph and he said, "I'm Stefan Molyneux and uh, I hate your parents too." You know, <laughs> so so there's this perception uh, of uh, I think a lot of people who they hear things, they take quotes out of context. And I really think that that Steph's only call is that people need to examine this because it it it, it shapes our adult self um, in ways that I think a lot of people don't ever want to look at. Um, and unfortunately, the real consequence of that is that the, there's a transference or an inheritance for the next generation, because it's, it's easier, I think, for a lot of people to just treat children poorly than to recognize um, what was done to them, to accept and to face uh, what was done to them as children, whether we're talking about the family or we're talking about uh, you know, school or society or religion all these places where children are mistreated. Was that any kind of an answer <laughs> to what was asked? Or is there anything I could do to flesh it out a little better? I think so. That makes sense to me. Yeah, that makes sense um, to me as well. Now we'll see if the, call, if the person who had the question has any uh, follow-ups. But um, right now we have a caller. Great. So, Damon, please go right ahead. Speak with Brett. Brett, good morning. Good morning, sir. Oh my gosh, you're waking me up. This is wonderful. Um, I wanted to say thank you first because I think um, my journey to these types of topics has been opposite of yours. I actually started with you in School Sucks about uh, maybe a year and a half ago. 
and that led me through your discussions with Complete Liberty, and then that led me back to uh, Steph. So that was uh, been really amazing. Great. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear there's uh, uh, that I could return the favor to those guys. Yeah, absolutely. And I called because I um, I, I see a lot of similar similarity in your personality, and that I love children. I'm really vested in uh, education and making, and um, things like that. And I was drawn a little while back, maybe six months ago, to the idea of um, uh, the democratic schools, the Sudbury schools. I've <laughs> since progressed beyond that because I'm considering children in the near future. And I've progressed beyond to really look more personal to the unschooling where I really work with my children one-on-one -on -one and worry less about, you know, larger institutions. <laughs> Sure. Uh, but I, I had heard uh, or had seen you mention that you had looked at the, the concept of democratic schools and how much of it is, has so much anarchy embedded into it as a success model, but then kind of drops the ball at the last minute to, to kind of use punishment and use uh, social enforcement in, in some ways that might not be so productive. I wanted to hear some of your thoughts on that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we, uh, my co-host for... For my live show, Jason Osborne and I went down to Framingham, Massachusetts, where the original Sudbury School is about two months ago. And we spent a few hours there and, uh, you know, we saw some things that we we really liked and uh, we saw some things that we found to be kind of troubling. And you know, what what we really liked is that everybody there seemed to be really happy. Uh, they seemed to have uh, positive relationships that was really um quite alien to most of the school environments that I witnessed in my decade plus of uh, experience in education. Uh, we felt like there was obviously a dangerous amount of collectivism, and we kind of surmised that this is the result of maybe where the school is, you know, in Massachusetts. It's a pretty liberal, uh, pretty collectivist, pretty unfree place. And maybe maybe it would be possible for a, a school like that to exist, um, you know, up where up where we are and take the best features of Sudbury and, and leave the rest behind. The 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 thing with democratic school is it, there is this question and I and I really don't know I don't know the answer. If you're going to have a school um, and there are going to uh, there is a need to make decisions to that affect everybody. Um, how do you do that? I mean, I don't I don't mind the democratic process uh, when there's six people deciding on what to have for dinner, you know. So is there is there um, is there an opt out? Right. If there are decisions that are made on a, uh, a community level or school level, is there an alternative for people who don't want to go along with that decision. So I, I think that um, the problem with Sudbury is that the idea of the school being democratic, uh, that's kind of king there, you know, yes. that that supersedes everything, that that democracy and freedom, a, a mistake that a lot of adults make around the world, um, democracy and freedom are synonymous, you know? So as long as we're democratic, as long as everybody has a voice, um, there's nothing really to uh, complain about. I mean, it, certainly we can complain about little things and take it to a vote, but as far as the the function of the school as a whole, there's nothing to complain about. So well, can I 
Can I loop that back because uh, um, you're 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 sparking off ideas in my head with uh, which is I guess the best part of a conversation. Um, what it sounds like it, it sounds like is missing from democracy in that type of school would be negotiation. Would be, I mean, Steph talks about, uh, and we all talk about reality not having any conflicts in it. So if there's two people that are conflicting, they're either not understanding each other's point of view or they're not understanding the goals of the of the problem. What, you know, what the, try to get to the best solution. So that the voting seems kind of like a cop out. Like we're we're not really ever going to understand each other, so we might as well just count straws and see who gets to win. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because this was probably uh, the most off-putting part of the whole experience for us. Um, we had a tour guide and we uh, we asked her, she, she was talking about this judicial review. Now, we only thought this there was this school meeting where they voted on things, but there was this judicial review process where um, she said that if one student breaks the rules, they're often, uh, you know, reported. Or if one student feels um, wronged by another, they report it. They file a report, and it goes to judicial review. And my uh, question, uh, the question that formed instantaneously in my mind, is like, well, obviously, this this changes with age, right? Like, yeah, I think it's normal for. Um, maybe it's not ideal, but I think it's normal in you know the way society works today that when very young children have a problem, they seek uh, adult authorities to to mediate or solve, really to solve that dispute. Um, we would like to think that as children grow and become more more independent and they reach the teen years, or something that I think should happen. Uh, more quickly in a school like Sudbury, they would seek resolutions to interpersonal conflict without involving other people, without um, running to some kind of committee, or 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 what what is in that sense the authority, right? That they would be able to do exactly what what you were saying. Look, there's no. Uh, you know, there's no contradictions in nature. What's um, where are we misunderstanding each other? What do you need? What do I need? Um, how can we come to, uh, uh, you know, a, a mutually beneficial, non-sacrificial um, compromise here? And, and what we were told is that, no, whenever there is a conflict, it is uh, they're encouraged to make reports. Um, if students can get in trouble. Uh, for not reporting things to judicial review. A girl later told me that she received a one-day suspension uh, per judicial review for walking on the wrong side of the street. And this I found very troubling. So uh, I, I think that Sudbury was probably started with the 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 best of intentions, but it's an organization that uh, has existed for 40 plus years um, as as organizations uh, continue to exist. I think there's a tendency for them to become more bureaucratic and um, there uh, a lot of rules have been put in place there. And uh, I don't I don't know how uh, those the, the process for evaluation are rules removed. Uh, I, I just think it was a sign that maybe some things have gotten a little out of hand if a 15 or 16 year old girl is being punished by a group for walking on the wrong side of a street. It tells me that something, uh, despite all the positive as aspects of Sudbury, something has gone wrong there. 
Well, it sounds like uh, that idea of negotiation and also competition, they kind of have accepted that idea of monopoly on res dispute resolution, which is, I think, the first subject Steph tackled when he started his podcast, that, that idea that it's all in or all out. You know, you can accept our organization or you can leave. And there's no, yeah. you know, you would think with these amazing bright minds that are fully being developed that in 40 years, wouldn't uh, some kids have gotten together and created a, an alternate dispute resolution organization within their school that, that would have outcompeted the, the official one. But it sounds like I bet that's pretty much not allowed. Uh, it, it it doesn't seem that way, and and you know we were we were also interested in um, you know on, on the sense of like the the effectiveness of the school. What is the what is the output? You know what are people doing doing after Sudbury? Most importantly, are are they happy adults? And um, we were we were actually talking about this on a on a live show recently, and um, I had Gardner Goldsmith on with me, who's lived in New Hampshire. Uh, most of his life, and is very familiar with um, with the Sudbury program and and you know Massachusetts politics. And he said the the school is notorious for producing you know very left wing um, statists. And uh, I find that that's that's unfortunate. So, but yeah. but I I think I see how that that can happen because what what it seems that Sudbury teaches is a hope for. Um, the establishment of a, of a benevolent authority. Like, yeah, we understand that, um, you know, maybe things on the, on the national level, and I'm kind of speaking, I think, the best I can for, for that mindset, haven't, haven't gone the, the right way. Uh, but it doesn't mean that this isn't a good system. It doesn't mean that democracy can't work. It's just uh, um, hope and change, that kind of a thing, you know? So... Um, that uh, there were there I mean I just there there were things that, that I really liked about Sudbury but I I think that unfortunately um, th these troubling aspects of it left left an impression on me as well so so my next step when I was uh, noodling around this in my head was to say well it sounds like what's missing is sort of those competitions and not competition like sports team win lose but really an ability for the children to play around with the idea of uh, what is their time and what is their identity worth? What's their value and how do they exchange that? And I was starting to think that it might be possible to implement a, a similar school, but that really was much more organic in its, in its future development, that you're not dictating how it goes. And if you could almost simulate a small economy within the school with, you know, not real money maybe, but some sort of simulation of it, where kids can really push and identify where value is happening and actually have say in immediately getting the people who do the best stuff to, uh, to have the most resources. And that might allow some more organic development to, over time. Yeah. I, I, I mean, these are, these are things that, that we're, we're talking about. Um, I, I, a question that I've asked for a long time is, you know, is is the building necessary? You know, is this is this just an idea that we might have to move beyond? You know, the idea of having a school. Uh, what 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 is the what is the real benefit? I think most of them, as far as like having a place where kids can go, are are practical more than anything else. You know what I mean? Um, sure. 
time. People need a place to send their kids during the day. People need to create situa situa uh, situations where uh, a small number of adults can watch a large number of kids or, or kind of facilitate activities for a large number of kids just because of the way um, that the, the economy works. People got to go to work. They can't take their kids with them. Um, I think that there's obviously some some political and economic realities that uh, are are somewhat limiting right now. Uh, but the uh, the broader question is 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 school necessary? Is the idea of a school building a, a physical plant where education happens? Is that is that an idea that really has a way of working? I don't know. I really don't. And that might be another aspect you noticed. So how did you feel about the astonishing lack of parental uh, daily participation in a school like that? I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at my life, you know, getting ready to have kids, and I just sold a five-bedroom house with a pool to move to a little tiny apartment because I really want to realign my resources to allow me to work maybe less than half a year and really allow me to spend time and uh, have that family and not... Uh, and not just, you know, I could imagine, I'm from Natick, the next town over from Framingham. And, uh, I mean, there's a whole lot of giant single-family houses in those towns. And you wonder uh, if these people are choosing to have their big house instead of choosing to spend time with their kids. And so I, don't, I, I kind of reject the idea that the economy is forcing them because there's a whole lot of little cheap apartments they could move into. No, you're you know? right. You're, you're really right. And, and I should know because um, I, I know we have a, a global audience here and we're talking about central Massachusetts. But I used to work in, you know, Needham. This is a really wealthy area of Massachusetts outside of Boston. So these are the suburbs of Boston where most of the people who are making tons of cash um, and, and regardless of having to give 60% of it to the state of Massachusetts and the federal government, uh, people who are making a lot of money, this is where they live in Massachusetts. And uh, this is where I did most of my tutoring work between uh, 2006 and 2008. And these people, uh, you know, dad was president of a bank and mom still worked, you know, because they, they uh, so, so and, and all of the uh, out-of-school educational activity was outsourced to people like me. So you're right, it is a choice. And uh, there is uh, obviously that, that keeping up with the Joneses uh, aspect to it as well. Because if dad's salary, you know, uh, affords them uh, a five or six bedroom house on 10 acres in um, Needham, Massachusetts, I, I, I don't even want to think about what the property taxes are there. Um, then, yeah, the mom's choice to work is certainly not out of necessity. So, uh, yeah, I think that's I, I think that's admirable. To to, I don't want to I certainly don't want to call it a sacrifice, but to prioritize like you're doing, and I think that a lot of people tell themselves this story. I think this was the way it was. Um, uh, with me to a certain extent is that parents say, well, the way that I can help my kids the most is to make as much money to provide as much financial stability as possible, which is nothing more than a story, of course. Yeah, it's I think it's a story that a lot of people are telling themselves. I mean, I, I grew up in, in one of those big houses and I got a thousand dollars plus of presents every Christmas. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that it actually encouraged some really anti 
social anti-developmental behavior. I was into model trains and I would uh, sit in the basement hours and hours a day putting together these models. And every year my crack was, uh, you know, was, was encouraged and more model trains kept showing up as presents. And uh, at the same time, no one asked, hey, why is he in the basement and not talking to people and not playing with anyone? And it's, uh, those, those types of self-understanding questions that you start, started this conversation with, I think, are really brutally important. And they're often not fun to look at, but, I mean, God. Yeah, I think it also can, you can form this, this feeling or this belief that everything, you know, when, you, when you're raised like that, um, you form this belief that everything is always just somehow going to be taken care of. And maybe to adult, as an adult, that um, translates to uh, somehow everything will just be okay, which can really uh, sap people's motivation. Um, I, I just I, my, my observations from my own life and from the lives of friends that I grew up with who uh, were, you know, similar economic status. And I mean, obviously, once you get to be an adult, there's no one to blame for that and 100% responsibility lies with me or whoever we're talking about to, to change that but uh, yeah I think there's there's a lot of detrimental effects to that um, I could get even more in intriguing if there's no I don't know if there are any other topics or callers coming up but uh, I have some really uh, sidetracked comments so guys is that alright uh, no other callers at the moment I might like to have anything else Oh, go ahead, Damon. Well, I, I could take this conversation a little more international. I've had, this past week, I had some, one of the best weeks of my life. I uh, work for a large corporation, and we are expanding into Shanghai. And we, so uh, there's a large number of people being hired from the local populace to join the, the company. And our company is uh, very American, very uh, all about uh, selling magic and positive memories, things like that. So I've start, uh, reached out in a mentorship program to become a mentor because I'm I've been ten years in my my uh, my field, so I figured I could, and I have doing these conversations, which offer allow me to offer so much unique perspective to people. And so I have these three young women in Shanghai who picked me out of a hat and said they wanted to talk to me. And uh, I I think I can circle this back to education. It, it was intriguing. They, in their culture, there's no idea of choice or real honest respect. Um, all the, even though you know Asian culture is very much, uh, they talk about respect for elders, respect for many types of people. They don't really respect that idea of individual choice, you know, being the root of where respect actually really comes from. So when I started talking about some of those topics, um, they kind of blew their mind in a positive way. And it did really quickly go back to education in childhood that um, that that it you know you you wouldn't necessarily learn to question anything or learn to figure out what your own values are to figure out what choices you can make in life. Um, so yeah, big sidetrack, but it, it just blew my mind. And I talked to two different women for an hour, and we had nothing. You wouldn't think we'd have anything in common, but my God, there's someone on the other side of the planet, and I was able to connect with them really closely, very quickly, because these types of things we're learning about respect and choices and, and how to self-analyze self, self uh, analyze yourself really are universal. And it was amazing. It's like she was down the street. So respect is a kind of a routine or this theatrical performance that people do. It's not a thing that is real. 
Right. When we get, uh, I mean, in our company, we really push the whole everyone says each other's first name. Um, yeah. As, which, frankly, might be partly theatrics. <laughs> but it does help uh, with the idea that we all have something to add. We're all peers. And some people are paid more maybe because they have more experience or their decisions have wider ramifications. But in the end, we're each there to help each other one-on-one. -on -one, and that was so foreign to her. Or um, the idea that you're equal with your boss is just mind-blowing. Yeah, I've worked places like that, too, where it's everybody calls everybody by their first name to, the, to their face. And everybody calls anyone above them by their last name behind their back. You know? So... Um, yeah, it, it, that really is just kind of a, a routine, right? Yeah. And, and I, uh, it's kind of like the idea. It's, it reminds me, uh, uh, we'll force you to be moral, <laughs> you know, where once force is introduced, uh, morality is not the right word anymore. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I think that there, there's plenty of that here as well. And um, More than enough. Yeah, absolutely. I just heard a recent, I'm in 2009 listening to Seth's podcast in order, uh, taking my time. And I just heard one that was talking about how the idea of hierarchy or the idea of someone, you know, dictating what someone else should do, how, how inefficient that is. And I think that relates back to all the stuff you're trying to do with school. It's the idea of sending people to a place and telling them what they should do and what's best for them and how non-humble that is, how, how, how on earth, uh, one of the things that's really uh, piqued my interest in the last year is the idea that people, no person on the planet can be boring. And we each have millions of hours of experience. And I've only just met you for 30 minutes. You can't be boring. There's too much content for you to draw from. And uh, that idea that I, knowing you for an hour, can know what's best for you when you know yourself for thousands and thousands of hours is just insanity. And uh, it's so hard to present that to people, at least in my experience, because it's to present that someone has been that insane for so long, it's really hard to look that in the face. Right. Um, yeah, I could actually take this back to the first question that Michael asked me about some of the issues that um, I might have with the, the liberty movement as a whole. And, um, you know, I think that... Uh, another thing I would like to see is maybe a little bit less arrogance. Um, there's I, I, this is something that I think is um, it happens in politics generally, but people will start a conversation with somebody on the issue of religion or politics or schooling or parenting. And there's an impulse, and, and I've certainly been guilty of this myself, there's like an impulse to, to categorize them and dismiss them, you know? And um, that's not a way, that's not a way to learn anything. There's, there's no enrichment that's gonna come from that interaction if um, the, the one person's effort is to characterize the other person or to sort or group the other person for the purpose of, of dismissal. And um, I see a lot of that. I think I've engaged in, for, for people who, who um, talk about the value of individualism, um, I, I think that's something that we should try to avoid at all costs. And I say the same thing to myself because I know, I know I've done it on my show and in real life. Uh, but yeah, you're right. There's a huge missed opportunity when you do that. I'm glad you brought that up, Brad. I, 
I'm certainly guilty of doing this in the past too, almost bullying people with the truth. Mm. You know, it was it wasn't about honest communication and trying to help them understand ideas. It was about me feeling superior because I had this information and understood it. And it happened to be true. That's you know, it, it definitely happened to be true, but I was going into the interaction not trying to honestly communicate with someone and help them understand, but to bully them with my knowledge and look down on them and say, like, oh, I have this information and you don't. Therefore, in some way, shape, or form, that makes me superior to you. And that's an absolutely horrible way to communicate these ideas. And it's something I've seen other people do. It's something I've done in the past. I don't know if it's a stage that people tend to go through as they're exposed to this kind of information or if it's you know more select, but it's and I think it does an absolute disservice to the subject, and it is not in any way, shape, or form empathizing with the people that you're trying to communicate with. Yeah, absolutely, and this is one of the the, the ways that I found nonviolent communication to be helpful. I mean, if people are are unfamiliar with nonviolent communication, or you have kind of a negative concept of it, it's not a it's not like a set of PDF scripts that you print offline and bring to your conversations. I think it's really a language that you need to speak with yourself first and you need to understand, um, you know, what needs are you trying to get met by the actions that you take? Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of tie-ins between uh, NVC and um, Brandon's Six Pillars of Self-Esteem, Living Purposefully, Uh, I think there's there's some correlation between uh, nonviolent communication and uh, objectivism, because they're really the only two philosophies that I think are entirely non-self-sacrificial. And, um, you know, being able to understand why I wanted to engage people that way, like you're talking about, Michael, was was incredibly valuable for me. It was an incredibly valuable pursuit. I actually had a conversation with Steph privately a couple of years ago. And, and one of the things that he told me was, you know, you know, I really hope you understand, you really need to understand why you're doing what you're doing. You know, why do you want to do this? And, um, you like, you kind of have to have, uh, you kind of need to do RTR with yourself. And, um, I think that was, that was something for a long time that, that I didn't do and that I wasn't doing. And, uh, like I said, the easiest thing in the world and it still happens to me, like when we're doing live radio and I've got dead air to fill, the easiest place to go to is the negative, the what somebody else is doing wrong, the judgment. It's so, because it's so, I mean, I mean, maybe it has something to do. I, I was with, with um, you know, I think parts of my personality were formed when I had accomplished nothing, probably had um, lower self-esteem than I do now. And I think it's just this, this hard wiring that we that you have to fight sometimes the impulse to go to that place and and be uh, and be a hater, because um, I find myself doing that a lot and, and it, it's really you have to be vigilant to um, to avoid that. So uh, that's that's one way that uh, I found that that self knowledge that self awareness um, NVC was really helpful uh, with. The, with that for me. I think that's a really important idea, Brad. I mean, being conscious. I mean, I think you can break down a lot of the ideas that Steph talks about into two words, be conscious. Mm. (laughs) Be conscious of the decisions that you're making and why you're doing the things that you're doing. If you're conscious of what you're doing and you make a conscious choice to do something, 
you win. I mean, like, <laughs> there is no, there are no rules. There is no right or wrong answer. You need to be conscious of the decisions that you're making, and you know the effects that they're having on other people. And yeah, and part of living consciously is is being not just open, but uh, you know, like really, like eagerly open to any new information, and and not in the way where you're being kind of a uh, you know. A, like the Socratic, uh, like you're you're kind of toying with somebody, like this cat and mouse game where you're like, oh, tell me more about your ideas, silly, you know, <laughs> like that, like that kind of um, false interest, that that jabbing questions at people. And I mean, this is another thing that I've talked about so many times and been so guilty of in the past. Like, just ask people questions, jab at people with these questions till they see their belief system collapse right in front of them. Well, you know, that doesn't make them look forward to uh, seeing you again. Uh, when you do have a lot of valuable information to share with other people, but you you shame them, you guilt them, you judge them, you dismiss them, you categorize them. It's not like they're going to, those kinds of people are going to be lining up to get more knowledge from you in the future. So uh, yeah, I think part of living consciously is, is even if you deep down disagree, even if you deep down know somebody else um, is wrong, to to be eagerly open to any information, any knowledge, you know, feedback that they have. And um, I think there's a laziness too, where other people might tell us things that we don't want to hear. Other other people might tell us things that. Um, if we accept their advice, require additional um, thought and effort on our part. And the lazy thing to do is just dismiss them. Um, and, and maybe that uh, maybe that happens a lot in political, religious, social, educational, philosophical debate. Maybe it happens in our personal lives. Maybe it happens in our professional lives. Uh, but we all know the, I think we've all at least interacted with a person, maybe on a professional level who was like, yeah, supervisor A said I need to do X, Y, and Z, but he's an asshole, you know? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that kind of dismissal. And, and there, there's, there's uh, a variety of levels of sophistication to that kind of dismissal of another person. But um, really a real effort to live consciously, I think, um, would lead to less occurrences of that. Those situations that you talked about, like if you're just jabbing away at someone with questions, I mean, and it's not coming from a, a place of genuine interest or curiosity or actually wanting to help them get closer to the truth or to better understand where they're coming from, that's going to be communicated. <laughs> that's going to be communicated, like you said, the person's probably not going to enjoy that interaction, and this stuff is hard to accept anyway. Of the ideas that we talk about, and you know, if if someone's not enjoying the interaction, and you're not empathizing with how difficult it is to pretty much hear in in the course of a conversation that hey, all this stuff that you've believed for X number of years that you've been alive, there's a lot of it that uh, you might want to re-examine. Yeah, that may not be in the best interest. That's that's going to be a really, really. Uh, unproductive conversation if you're not connected to that kind of uh, empathy. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think when people take some of these more aggressive approaches, other people know what you're trying to do anyway. You know, I mean, even if even if we get real cute about it, 
Um, it, it's this is where the emotions come into it again because uh, even if they can't articulate, like, oh, I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to do this, this, and this, and um, I think it imprints something emotionally about you onto to them, you know, and they just know that they don't, uh, they they are not going to. Um, look to you as somebody that is empathetic or that they could forge a meaningful connection with if, um, you know, your approach is so costly. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's important. Very good point. Uh, caller, did you have any more questions for Brett? Uh, I think I was enjoying the nice passive bliss of listening to you guys talk. It was wonderful. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'd be curious, Brett, in hearing your thoughts on, uh, we just had Dana Martin on the Sunday show a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And, you know, the ideas she talks about with unschooling, I find it completely and totally fascinating. And, you know, the idea that your role as a parent is to be more of just a facilitator for your child's interests. And like you said before, do we need the building? <laughs> yeah, you know, is is the building there to facilitate, or um, you know, is that something that can just be done at home? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the unschooling approach versus. Um, you talked about Sudbury schools, and certainly there's Montessori schools, and there's a lot of options for non-traditional schooling. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts and comparisons between each of those, and which one you think is closest to the way to go. Well, if we define unschooling, if it, you know, the opposite of schooling, then it's, it's just self-directed learning, right? Mm -hmm. So, so un, it, it's just education. That's, that's, that's all it is. That's how we learn things as an adult. We make a choice. We, we have some, we recognize some kind of intrinsic motivation that we have. And then we come up with a, a follow-up plan to that realization. And after that, uh, uh, we go through a process and then we know something. Right. So it's not uh, the, the idea uh, of this being radical or uh, new agey or a foreign concept. Uh, I, I, I think that um, everybody everybody recognizes uh, or I think all of us recognize that this is how we learn. This is how adults learn. And um, as far as as far as parents are concerned, I think there is an importance to to being proactive as far as creating an environment where learning can take place. And uh, that's that's very obvious, I, I, I think, what uh, parents should do. I think uh, I, I was watching this video where Steph was talking uh, to a gentleman where he was saying that, uh, you know, sometimes people mistake unschooling for, for unparenting, right, where it's just complete um, uh, unschooling or home education, as I refer to it, and Laurette Lynn refers to it, is certainly not about disengagement. In fact, I think it requires more engagement. Sending your, sending your child to government school is disengagement. I mean, it, it needs to be disengagement. You would drive yourself crazy if you had to think about what was going on uh, and what they were being exposed to there for 35 hours a week. So, um, you know, I think it's about increasing engagement and, and really uh, observing um, what uh, I mean, you really have to be on top of when is it time to introduce new things? When are old things getting old? What what does this physical environment need to have in it to, um, you know, not obviously not force, but encourage uh, new new development? So I think it's a it's a tremendous amount of um, 
of work. And uh, I, I really think that people need to throw out all all language and thought that relates to school, right? So age groups, timelines, levels, all that stuff needs to go. And it's it's difficult to let go of that stuff because it's so schooled into us as uh, a generation who spent 15,000 hours in these indoctrination centers. So, um, yeah, I mean, th there are... Um, I, I think it's a great challenge, and I have uh, a lot of admiration for people like Dana Martin, who, strangely enough, I've never had on my show. I don't have any good reason why. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna write to her today or tomorrow and and get her on. I, I listened to like the first uh, 45 minutes of the show uh, that she did, um, Colin show. So, I really I really enjoy her work. Uh, is there is there anything else more specific I could address related to that? I would be interested in, in hearing your thoughts on um, you talked about getting rid of the building mm -hmm. and throwing everything out. And certainly you can go as a facilitator, as a parent, do that yourself. You know, you, you can be there for your child and help facilitate yourself. There's You could also, the idea of paying someone else to do it or having someone help you in that role. And... I'd be interested to see, like, if you what your thoughts are on that subject. Do you, do you think there's a market for whether it's certainly tutors or that kind of thing, but whether whether the building exists or not, um, you know, offloading that and having someone assist you in the process of facilitating for your child? So I think there's a market for that, not without uh, a, a, like a real dramatic paradigm shift in and a real evolution in what people's conception of education is. I think a lot of the people who have the means to hire somebody like me and, um, you know, when I was, I mean, when I was working down in uh, Damon's area there in, uh, you know, the suburbs of Boston, the company I worked for was billing people like $75 an hour. And I was working with some kids like five, six hours a week, you know? So, so a lot of people are just priced out of that immediately. And, you know, years of being in business, we, we obviously uh, worked very hard and tried to come up with a lot of different ideas and, and, and settings and arrangements to make the service more accessible to more people. Um, but, it, but it is expensive. And I think, unfortunately, right now, a lot of people who have those means are um, competitive in the ways with each other that I described before. And... and um, the the concerns go more towards uh, the best private school, you know, or getting son or daughter into the best college. I think this is partially the appeal for a lot of people of Sudbury, because Sudbury is um, considered to be this kind of elite, well-established alternative school. And I think a lot of parents who who might be just as happy if they're son or daughter went to Choate or Phillips Exeter or someplace like that, um, like the the name Sudbury. You know, my child went to Sudbury School. Um, I mean, this goes, this is everything from, you know, Harvard University to high school hockey. Uh, parents, you know, kind of using, using their children to, um, you know, build their own sense of self. That, that was kind of on shaky ground from their own childhood. So I think that 
really, I mean, I've I, honestly, Michael, I've all but given up on um, a career for me um, doing things the way I had been doing. It it just it wasn't enough work. It wasn't sustainable uh, by itself. I mean, fortunately, the the um, podcast has has picked up some of the slack as far as income for me. Um, but I, and, and, and there's a, there was some frustration of just doing the same thing over and over again with this standardized test tutoring. Um, I, I, I made numerous efforts to reach out to homeschooling groups to, to build a, um, uh, they, and, and I think a lot of it, uh, the, the outreach I was doing before the, what came with the rejection was you're just trying to sell us something. Right. So I was an outs I was an outsider coming into a community that had already been um, established and, um, you know, asking them to pay me for something that they felt was they were being able to do uh, with far less financial resources already. So I, I, the lesson that I'm trying to take to the future of of being a, an, you know, an educator or facilitator of education for money is um, maybe to to try and take the lessons that I've learned from the podcast. Like I've been able to get uh, subscribers the same way Steph has by push marketing. You know, like you you have to put a tremendous amount of, of content out there for free. And um, when people recognize that that has value, then, you know, maybe they'll, they'll kick you some money every month. Um, because they want, first of all, I mean, like I still, I'm still uh, sending Steph money, but I don't listen to the show regularly because I recognize how how valuable it is. You know, I mean, I paid what sixty, seventy thousand dollars for an uh, almost worthless college education, and and what 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 free domain radio? How how many times over has free domain radio multiplied its value um, compared to uh, the the six years that I spent in college between undergrad and grad school? So yeah, I mean that's something that I would continue to support, whether I'm a regular listener or not. And um, I think that when when you can prove that uh, what you do has value, uh, maybe push marketing can create a a market. So so that's how I'm kind of rethinking things as far as as the tutoring is concerned. I'm actually going to start a new website and possibly a new podcast and YouTube channel, giving stuff away for free. You know, people are paying. I, I mean, the the bread and butter for me for years has been um, SAT, and uh, people are paying five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars for those courses. I'll put one online for free, and um, you know, I I, I think. Uh, Really, what I'm driving at here is the, the answer to your question is no. I, I don't see from my experience, right? In an area, in two areas specifically, first in Massachusetts, where there is a lot of focus and interest in education, there is, um, and I'm using this word as positively as I possibly can, a progressive attitude about education. In New Hampshire, where there's a lot of uh, value put on homeschooling and educational freedom, um, you know, maybe I just haven't been successful as an entrepreneur. But in those two places where um, offering people 
all a, a real alternative to the government school or even private school or the building at all. Uh, I just haven't been terribly successful. Mm. So, And the other side of that, though, is now if you were successful in that, you would be talking to one person, two people, three people, only a handful, only so many hours in a day. Whereas now you get to communicate to everyone that's got an internet connection. There's a lot more potential people that you can reach with what you're talking about and a lot more people that you can touch and have a positive effect on. Absolutely. And that has that obviously has a value that's um, different from compensation, uh, you know, monetary compensation. And I, and I don't forget that. You know, I, I try to uh, uh, maintain gratitude for, for that. Because, I mean, I, I, and I've thought, like, there's been times where I've gotten frustrated about uh, lack, of, uh, lack of engagement, lack of views, lack of hits, lack of uh, donations coming in. And, and I remind myself, if I, if I had stayed the course and become a school teacher, I could reach as many people in a career as I reach in three or four days now. So, and, and... I would also have been restricted in the other environment in how I reach them. You know, and I already, I already felt that happening. Um, even in private school, you know, I was being uh, censored to a certain extent and had to censor myself uh, in order to keep my job. I don't have to do that anymore. So, yeah, I agree. And thanks for reminding me of that. I need to remind myself of that more, too. We actually have another caller on the line. Great. Um, go ahead, caller. Hey, how you're, are you? All right, you're up. All right. Um, well, so this is a call about unschooling, right? And um, this is my first, um, this is my first involvement in this kind of call. Um, but I'm in school myself right now, and I'm in a different kind of a structure. It's an online school. Uh, for health coaching, and it's um, pretty, it's interesting, um, but I'm finding it really difficult because there's no real set structured way to connect with other people, and I think that's the biggest challenge with alternative structures with schools, the connection, um, but in the same way, there's really never any connection in these other schools, like the college I've been to, um, I never really felt like I understood what people were doing there. So I think it's really important to have an overall understanding of what you're doing in a school. But I also think that it's important to have a, a really solid connection with the other people that you're studying with. I go to school with people all over the world. Um, but yeah, yeah can, we, can we just define that word a little bit uh, better, connection? Like, what, what, what would you say, Ashley, is the connection that, that you're looking to have, like, on what level? Um, sure. Like, um, well, I, I used to be an FDR. Uh, I used to be an FDR member, avid follower. And it was every single day. It was like my job. And it felt great to connect like that. Mm -hmm. Um. But there's no everyday connection um, with the people. And I can, okay, I'll define a connection as um, you're kind of streamlined consciously. Your your goals are similar, 
your core beliefs are very similar and that's what you discuss. And um, I don't, we don't have that in my school. It'll, does that make it a little bit more clear, the connection I'm talking about? Just kind of sharing the consciousness, sharing a conversation. Really. Yeah. Um, well, what did you say you were studying again? I'm sorry. Sure. I study holistic health coaching. It's alternative. Um, it's, I don't know what you guys think of it, but <clears throat> my job is to motivate people through life changes. Um, sure. specifically through their food and lifestyle choices. So, I mean, obviously it's, uh, it's a different subject matter than a lot of, uh, I would say majority of what probably goes on on the FDR boards where you were having yeah. these other types of connections. Uh, is it possible that, um, you know, being, being involved in the FDR community was something that, that required more emotional engagement, that it was easier to forge meaningful connections with other people because of what was being discussed. And, um, you know, those kinds of connections, uh, there, there might be, uh, you know, educational or philosophical environments where the, those connections form more easily than, than other places. Well, that's, that's very interesting that you say that because my school is based on um, these like five pillars of primary foods versus secondary food. Primary food is your physical activity, your relationship with people, your relationship with your spirituality, and it has a lot to do with relationships. That's what we consider your primary food. And the relationships that you're establishing as a student at my school <clears throat> will really attribute to your ability to connect with people outside. It's all about connection. Um, mm. So it, it's boggling to me that I've had, I don't know, I've had a better, I had a better structure in FDR doing it voluntarily um, than I do at school, you know, even though this is semi-voluntarily because <laughs> you have to motivate yourself to get to the computer, but um uh, I guess there is, um, hmm. it's definitely like, a, my school definitely pushes for, for a connection, but they do it on a spiritual level. See, I, I'm not like that. Like, I, I don't really do that. I like to connect more on core belief systems. And, um, <clears throat> Could you tell me a little bit more about that? I just for my uh, satisfy my own curiosity here. Connecting on a on a spiritual level, like what what is what do you think that means to the to the other people in that community? Oh, uh, to the other people in the community, they have, um, you know, they have their belief system which was in place either in early childhood or they've gone on a journey and they found out what their higher power is. Um, <clears throat> And they do that, they make a connection to their higher power through things like yoga, meditation, and exercise. Um, so they have some, most of them have a clear definition of what their spirituality means to them. Others like myself don't really, but we, you know, I consider myself a very 
insightful person and I can help people just the same. Um, so I do think, I think the spiritual aspect gets in the way sometimes of me trying to connect with these people because they're talking about higher powers guiding them and, and like, you know, forces from the astral plane and all this crazy crap. And, um, I'm just trying to keep, you know, my feet on the ground here. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. It's, it's a bizarre atmosphere. Um, yeah. And you want to believe that people who are rational can have a non-conventional schooling. You know, you want to, I really want to, I really want to find my niche in this. Like I'm, I tried to, I tried to find my quote unquote spirituality there with um, exercises and visiting certain places and mantras and, um, you know, Okay, well, let me let me ask you this, because I'm just thinking about trying to put myself in in your shoes in this situation. Now, my impulse, right, as I enter this community uh, with my current belief system, which is, you know, to some degree uh, shaped by maybe as yours was by exposure to FDR um, Mm -hmm. and um, not not saying that. FDR is responsible for my initial assessment of these community of, of that uh, this community, but I walk in there and I say, "Look at these nitwits, right?" And there, and the astral planes, and uh, you know. So, so I guess my question would be: um, Do you feel like perhaps you're bringing a, a certain amount of judgment? Uh, into that setting with you that could be compromising or blocking the establishment of better connections? Or do you feel like you've made a genuine effort and the the spiritual component of of this, um, you know, this academic pursuit is just too obstructive for that? (laughs) Um, In a way, I've done more than I would imagine any other person doing. (laughs) <laughs> to to break out of my own, I guess, um, you know, my own way of thinking, especially being um, so influenced by FDR, definitely would consider myself influenced by FDR. <clears throat> I shaped my, I shaped my own perspective within FDR, and yeah. um, you know, FDR is very freeing in that sense. Um, and then to go into uh, an atmosphere where, um, where like atheism is not really recognized. It's I don't I haven't met a, a single atheist in my school. Can we um, can we talk about does does is um, higher power like uh, just a term that's used in lieu of God? Uh huh. Yeah. It it transcends all religions. It's you know, across the board, it acknowledges every sense of God anyone could think of, you know. So so it's not necessarily something that's religious. Like, for example, um, if I need to get to work in 20 minutes, um, a power greater than myself would be like uh, my Nissan, right? <laughs> so, so uh, I mean, is it... 
is it sort of does it does it have to be something spiritual? And I and I mean I know I've had honestly uh, in, in my life I know this is taking the conversation in a different direction, but uh, I've had some exposure to you know like uh, self help groups and substance abuse uh, uh, AA for example, and um, the it sounds like you have because you know, you already know that the higher power, yeah, is something that people recognize. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I, um, this is (laughs) shifting the the direction of the conversation completely, but, um, that was, that was a a world uh, in which I was involved many years ago. And I found that the, um, as I learned more, the obstacles to, um, maybe embracing some of the the positive aspects of um a community like that and and i think there would be a lot of agreement uh, disagreement uh, about how many positive as- uh, aspects there are but the biggest obstacle and what eventually drove me away from that kind of stuff was um the uh, this this spiritual aspect of it mm-hmm. uh, that was likewise yeah yeah likewise. I have similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> they like to say your higher power can be a rock if you want, but they don't, you know, um, it's not highly respected when you're talking about, <laughs> like, you could never be a counselor and say, and my higher power is a rock. That's a bunch no, of No, sure. And if you look at the literature for a lot of these 12 help, uh, 12 step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or uh, anything similar, that have that spiritual component to them, uh, like in a, they say we we're, we're allowed to develop an understanding of God as uh, God as we understood Him. Okay, well that really narrows it down, doesn't it? You know, as we understood that white bearded man floating in the clouds, um, Father of Jesus to be. Right? You know, like that that really um, it, it's nice talk, but. Um, for some people, especially people who might have been raised in these uh, very strict Roman Catholic or or something similar to that kind of settings, that word is always going to have uh, a lot of baggage attached to it. And uh, it's something that uh, can really be obstructive, I think. And uh, because I, I because I, I just imagine myself in that kind of situation and and the as, as much as I would try to to check them and be aware of them, and and deal with them as they came in. I just imagine being flooded with judgment, um, a judgment that I, I I wouldn't want to act on, but I think it would be something that I would have to be, uh, uh, you know, conscious of and deal with as it comes in because I think it would happen. I just yeah, think that's um, the way it would go. I I in, within well, thank you for sharing that. Within school, I've noticed. Um, it's very different from any AA group. Like it's very different from Alcoholics Anonymous, but they all seem to have um, this respect for a spiritual practice, spirituality. Um, um, I've, like I said, I've explored all the spiritual, whatever. <laughs> I've, I've done this little journey the past year and a half. And um, I've found the feelings within those spiritual practices to to be overwhelmingly um, similar to hope helplessness. Help. Mm. 
Well, certainly not. Yeah, certainly not self-sufficiency. If, <clears> if, <throat> if, if one of the requirements in, in the step work of all of these programs is that you, um, it, you formulate some kind of higher power and then you surrender to it. Surrender. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. okay, so uh, yeah, the higher power is not you. I think, I think that that's whether we're talking about overeating or alcohol abuse or drug abuse, the recognition yeah. that these kinds of programs want people to have is that um, they are not in complete control of, of the world, which is true. Um, so you, you, I guess, transfer this concept of I am God, uh, I rule, uh, I control all variables of my world, and when I can't control all variables in my world, it is a crisis that needs to be dealt with um, through food or gambling or alcohol or drugs. I recognize, I, I, I put faith and transfer control through some kind of, you know, uh, unclear ceremonial process to this higher power. And um, yeah, it's 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 very it's very disempowering. It's not about self sufficiency. It's not about self control, and um, uh, it's not about um, you know self responsibility. So, uh, yeah, I have a lot of problems with that. Yeah, um, yeah. So, um, so the groups that will kind of come together will be yoga groups or meditation groups, and um, I try to get involved with that and. Uh, I find that people um, who are really into their spirituality, they're not making any money at all. They're not. And the funny thing that happened is there's this, there's this, um, this switch that goes on in their head. They say um, it's something that's going on with um, the, it's something with the energy in this. <laughs> it's an energetic thing and there's a consequence to to my um my pursuits my pursuits are not happening because the energy is bad and it's something with the universe and it's something with the the, the planetary alignment or something and that's been just like ridiculous so. well you know it might just be not it might just be a problem of not having the vocabulary to talk about some things that might have some truth to them, right? So there was this big craze a few years ago called the secret. Secret? Secret, uh -huh. right? Oprah uh -huh. loved it. Oprah loved it. It was a book. It was a documentary. Um, and there was, um, unfortunately, it was really irresponsible because there was a bit of truth to it, and it was glossed over by some... Uh, some magical thinking, right? Like people who are positive uh, tend to have, uh, I, I think, better lives. And uh, people who are negative, I, I think, because um, you know, maybe it's it, it goes down to neuroplasticity or being creatures of habit or liking uh -huh. what we're liking what we're comfortable with, they tend to have more negative experiences in their lives. There's nothing magical about it. There's no spirits in the air. There's nothing, you know, whatever Whatever the secret tried to sell it as was a bunch of BS. But yeah, I, I mean, I've found that that people who, who can maintain positive attitudes um, lead better lives. And the people that I've been exposed to who are constantly negative, constantly complaining, um, have more miserable lives. It's not magic. You know, I think it's just like, what what are you, uh, you know, where are you looking? What are you expecting? Uh, I, I think a lot of times our 
our experiences will will match our expectations. And I thought it was irresponsible to sell it to pop culture as some kind of magic. Uh, so maybe I haven't provided much more vocabulary than the people who are talking about the planets being aligned, but maybe some of these ways of of framing somewhat true things in more spiritual or mystical terms is just a lack of, uh, you know, lack of adherence, first of all, to to reason and, um, you know, not having the grammar uh, necessary to uh, to communicate their observations and their experiences. Maybe. Yeah. Would you be willing to tell me what you mean about grammar? Uh, grammar is is really uh, I, I'm using that as um, a, a substitute for the word vocabulary, right? So there's there's a language that they need to know, and they need to understand the logic of that language, um, and uh, so it's just they're they're missing the words necessary, and maybe missing the ideas, right? That that lead us to the words necessary to uh, to better explain ourselves. So people. Uh, uh, it's it's easier to just frame things in this more spiritual God has a plan kind of kind of language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about your plan? God's plan, but it's your plan, and that's the truth in the truth or the secret that you you do lay out your life because it is your choice, regardless, no matter what, you know what, no matter what decision has to be made, you're the one in charge. You know, mm-hmm. that's the most powerful thing. That's the most powerful realization. But a lot of these students in school, is, they think, you know, if I surrender my beliefs and control, if I surrender my control in life, it's all going to work out. And but they're missing that where the control lies. You know, you have to choose where you want to invest this this control. You know, you you can control who you interact with. You control control um, where you're going in life. You cannot control your feelings. You know, you cannot control where you're from. There are lots of things that you can't control. And letting go of that, that is therapeutic. That's beneficial. <laughs> anyway, I appreciate you um, getting into this with me. Cause, sure, sure. Yeah. I hope I was somewhat helpful. No, you have been because um, I have the background in Al-Anon and AA, and um, I had that background even before school. Mm. And um, bringing all of that experience into this, you know, new wave, I mean, new age type of thinking, like, dude, I've already been there. Like, it's not doing anything for me. Mm. guys are missing out um, a lot but yeah so thank you for sharing that with me my pleasure Ashley thanks for calling thanks I saw saw a bunch of different faces appear guys during that uh, conversation on the the Skype call Brian do you want to go ahead Uh, sure why not sure great great hey how's it going thanks for the call hey Ryan uh, you were talking earlier about college, and you said it was a waste of time. Uh, I just finished my spring winter quarter, about to start spring, and it's only the first year. I have three more years to go, and it doesn't feel like it's that helpful 
feel did really feel that it's in the way of what I'm supposed to be studying. Mm-hmm. So, what do you suggest I do? Well, I mean, first of all, I I, I really I need I need uh, I need more information before before I get it. I just want to say that obviously, as far as I, I can, I I really only want to speak from my own personal experience. More than it being a waste of time, college college was a waste of money for me, first and foremost, um, as far as the return on investment. Um, the time, well, that's, I mean, okay, there's also this other problem where I studied communications. I was a freshman in college in 1995. I graduated in 2000. The entire communications industry was revolutionized uh, by the internet outside of college. Nobody told the people teaching in my college about it, apparently. Uh, while they were teaching us. So it was kind of a degree in media and communications history by the time I graduated. But I did have this very positive experience with a very left-wing socialist kind of history professor and um, that really uh, revolutionized and and, um, really had a positive influence on my attitude about, you know, my own intellectual abilities and my own pursuit of education and, and my career goals. So it's uh, if I hadn't gone to college, um, it might have taken me longer to have that experience. Um, I, 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 I'm not going to say that I regret anything, uh, but it's certainly, as far as the, the financial aspect of it, it's money that could have been better spent somewhere else. So can, can you tell me, Ryan, a little bit more about um, you know, what you're doing and what your, what your goals are? Sure. Uh, right now, I'm just studying prerequisite to become a business major. I haven't really applied yet. And the first couple course, uh, it's economic, it's one requirement. I enjoy that class, mm-hmm. but everything else, it's like stuff said, uh, management is just for a class that to manage people that the government broken down. And I don't want to be in that environment really. And all the management class is just stuff that I can learn from free domain radio instead and spend much less money on it. And I, I enjoy the experience and meet a lot of people, but my core class right now that I require for business, I'm not really doing super like great on it, just like average grade or lower because I can't really find a motivation to study it. It's like drill, 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 do your homework and just shut up and don't say anything. That's how the class works. So, Well, um, I mean, what, what college is today? I mean, college is obviously an institution that came to be at a time where most people had no access to information. And uh, obviously, you can find out anything that you can in a college. Uh, and, and it's not just like saying, well, you know, if you want to learn about business, go <laughs> Google business on, on the internet. Um, you can get um, uh, a syllabus for any course that, that you want to take. You could uh, assemble your own list of videos and links and podcasts that would help you achieve mastery of that course following a syllabus written by uh, some professional in academia. So, I mean, you can replicate using the internet everything that college does for free, except the piece of paper that they give you at the end. So, I mean, it it really, it comes down to what do you want to use 
college for? What do you want to do after that? Because basically, uh, college is basically, you know, it's like a, it's spending seventy-five to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a, a, a raffle ticket um, for the job raffle. You know, to to be able to put your ticket in your your college degree uh, on a resume. So, it really, I mean, do you have any idea of what you want to do when when college is complete, Ryan? Uh, as of right now, I would probably be looking into the human resource because I would like to communicate with people or mm -hmm. start my own business because I'm listening to Steph a lot and he said that we should try not to work for other people or I'm not really sure. Yeah, I have a lot of time to think about and you've been sparking a lot of uh, for me to think about too. But I have a question that also been sparked by you. What do you think I should use all my elective to study? Because some some of the stuff, especially like philosophy, I could be taking. I'm I'm not sure whether I, I would excel in that class or be really bad in it. Should I be taking class I'm already good at or something I don't really know? I if I was in, I mean, this is just again, I can only speak from from what I what I would do. Um, if I would, I would be interested in if I were a freshman or sophomore in college, in taking classes where I would where I would find myself at odds with um, the the professor. I think a I think a college philosophy course could be could be fascinating. Uh, I think it could also be very frustrating. But um, you know, I seek out um, opportunities to. Uh, listen to and engage people who have uh, very different viewpoints than I do. So, I mean, you know, if your priority to have a high GPA or to make like the national dean's list or something like that, I guess I would take electives that you already are really good at. And um, if you want to have um, an exciting and, and stimulating experience, I would uh, I would seek out opportunities like, you know, what philosophy, uh, I'm guessing most if you listen to free domain radio and you're taking economics class in college, I'm guessing there's going to be some conflict there. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, 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 it all depends on, uh, on what your goals are. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't steer you definitively in one direction or the other. Those would be two considerations though. Okay. All right. Yeah, you've been very helpful and kind. So I would probably be listening to this again and review what you said. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ryan. All right. Have a nice day. You too. Oh my goodness, we're almost out of time. I, w I do want to. I do want to say because I'll. I think I'll forget if I don't say it right now. Uh, we do do this every Thursday night on my show, six thirty. Um, SchoolSucksProject.com slash live people can call in and talk about anything that they want um and what what i really uh would like is if you know people have some kind of area where they feel they have uh, a fair amount of command or expertise they uh they use that as an opportunity a, a platform to uh to educate us I'm, I'm always impressed with how many like really really bright people there are um you know, in the FDR community uh, and uh, in my community, and there's certainly a lot of a lot of crossover. The work that I've done with Steph has really helped build build my audience. So, you know, 
open open phones every every Thursday on my show too. And Brett, tell tell uh, the listeners a bit more about your AV club and how how they can support what it is that you're doing. Okay, sure. Um, I have asked people for a little over a year to make a monthly contribution, which to me, even though it's smaller each month than like a donation, um, it it allows uh, it allows me to have uh, some predictability with the finances that that are coming in to the show. So what I ask people to do is become a subscriber um there's a variety of levels depending on what people you know can handle income wise but if somebody signs up for at least six dollars a month what i do to um you know offer some some additional value is we have this bonus content section where somehow i've accumulated over 200 other files of audio and video which includes, um, you know, archives that have been removed from the the regular podcast feed, uh, after shows, pre-shows, like a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, talking about planning out shows, and um, a, a lot of looser, more uh, amusing kind of content. We do this after show, which has pretty much become a show where we talk about movies. Um, and uh, what else is in there? Home movies. Uh, so... The, the thing is, is that like if I do something that's really, I think, has a lot of value, I'm always going to push market that, right? It, it will always go into the podcast feed because I recognize that my target audience is people who might not have PayPal accounts or, or um, bank accounts or Visa cards. I'm hoping Bitcoin will change some of this, is, you know, finally allowing uh, young people in America to have money. But um I do want to make sure that what I consider to be the most valuable educational content is free. But I think if you enjoy the show, um, and even you know, in the 200 episodes of School Sucks podcast, if you've only um, found you know, like 30 or 40 of them to be really valuable, I think you'll find a similar ratio with the with the content that we have behind this paywall. And I'm not saying that this is why people should give money to the show, but it's a you know, it's an extra offering to show my appreciation for people who will make that commitment because that's how the show grows. And that's what really, frankly, keeps the show going. It would be very, very hard to do this if it did not produce any money. That's just, those are the facts. Yeah. I think that's important to talk about Brett. If, if you support the work that Brett's doing, if you support the work that Steph is doing or the work that anyone's doing, if you want more of something, you know, supporting it financially is really important. Mm-hmm. So I, I wholeheartedly suggest people go over and check out Brett's AV Club and support the work that he's doing in addition to the work Steph's doing at Free Domain Radio because, you know, if, if you support this stuff, if you uh, are a fan of what people are doing, you have to support it financially. Otherwise, it's just not going to continue to exist. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it, it, this is really, if you feel the message is important, like if you if you feel it's important for um, a, a young person to be able to go online and discover that they are not defective despite um, all of the sometimes subtle, t- sometimes not so subtle messages of school and society, that they are not defective for failing to conform to this very rigid mold. Um, the same way, like, uh, you know, I, su- I support Steph's show, even though I'm not a, re- a regular listener anymore just because I don't have the time. I, I supported Free Talk Live for-, for years without listening because I recognize the value that that has in waking somebody up. Like, here's a show where, 
you know, these guys just get on the mic every night of the week for three hours and they look at current events through a the lens of liberty, which is which is an incredible, va incredibly valuable orientation pro uh, project. Uh, and process for people. I uh, support uh, complete liberty, even though I don't get to listen to every episode that Wes does, because it's just an incredibly valuable um, uh, resource. And um, you know, I I, I, uh, I will continue to do that because uh, for the reasons I've already outlined. <laughs> I occasionally throw some money too to like uh, you know some of these freeware things and uh, Wikipedia. Just with Jimmy Wales pops up and he says, hey, give me five bucks. I say, all right, Jimmy <laughs> Wales, you've helped me plenty. You've made uh, some of my research a lot easier, at least giving me a place to start. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think that that's that's really uh, important. And I think that that um, is us living into more of the economy that we would like to see instead of just talking about it. So. Yeah, thanks for thanks for bringing that up. That's uh, that's very important to me right now. All right, well, thank you, Brett. Thank you so much for guest hosting this week. It's it's been a lot of fun. And uh, if you have any closing remarks or anything you'd like to say, go for it. Uh, well, uh, again, I just want to say thank you, Michael, for the invitation, and thanks to James, and of course, uh, thanks to Steph for uh, many many reasons, including uh, you know letting me uh, letting me sit in today, uh, and for uh, Free Domain as a whole. Uh, people can check out my work at schoolsucksproject.com. You can uh, join our community there. Um, start your own group. You know, if you have some niche area within education that you want to uh, uh, let people know more about or discuss, you can be done there. You know, subscribe to our YouTube channel. School Sucks Podcast is the name. And uh, and that's about it. Thanks again. I really, I really enjoyed this, and I will certainly make myself available to do it anytime. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you again next week.